So before Tyler comes up, we're going to um, spend some time in the Word. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 9. And we're reading from the CSB. So it's titled Old Covenant Ministry. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Praise God. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in, heaven, in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. 
but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifices of, sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is God's word for us. Thanks, mate. So good to be with you all this morning, and we can just feast on God's word uh, from the book of Hebrews. I I have to say, um, I like, you know, just hearing that, chapter uh, read out chapter nine there's there's a lot of like old stuff in there right at the very beginning right up front that goes through all the furniture the articles in the old tabernacle so we're talking hundreds thousands of years ago and we're sitting here in 2020 you hear those words like Aaron's staff that budded and cherubim and it's like what is this and how could it possibly be uh, relevant or significant for us today but I'm going to say man I'm really loving the chance to really dive deep into Hebrews to see the connections uh, through Jesus between the old system of worship and our hope our hope that we have now the thing that gives us joy Uh, Chapter 9 is all about breaking down barriers, barriers that exist and have existed since the Garden of Eden between us, between people, and God who created us, and how Jesus is the one that overcomes all of these barriers. And we're going to look at three barriers in particular. Just like last week, we looked at the three promises of the New Covenant. For those who are in this new covenant agreement with God through Jesus, that we now receive unending mercy, we have the promise of unbroken communion, and we have the other one, which is escaping me right now, undivided hearts, undivided hearts that want to do God's will. We're going to look specifically today, chapter 9, at this idea of unbroken communion with God, unbroken communion with God, because there's, there's barriers There's barriers that makes that communion really difficult. But Jesus, in what he did, in what he did 2,000 years ago, breaks those barriers down. So, as I said, this is a particularly dense section, lots of images from the Old Testament. But I promise if you stay with me, you'll see why this is so significant and good for us. So let me pray before I dive in. Lord, thank you that we can come before you again with all of our needs and requests. Thank you that you give us your word, everything that we need for life, everything that we need to to know you, to do your will you've given us in your word. So Lord, come now through these words of chapter nine, these ancient words, and Lord, teach us your truth. Teach us your way. Give us your joy, your eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, we ask that you come now and be with us through your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 
Because this is a long chapter, today's message is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to walk through it so specifically line by line. We're going to walk through it a little bit more thematically, look at some of the key themes in this passage, and we're going to have to zoom out a little bit. So I said before, the focus here is on barriers that exist between God and worshipers between God and human beings who are like us, who were created to know him and enjoy him. And so let me just gonna, I'm gonna tell you the three barriers right up front. Here they are. Barrier number one, we have a defiled conscience or a broken or a defiled conscience. That's barrier number one and I'll explain what that means in a minute. Barrier number two is our sin uh, against God And then barrier number three is the physical separation between us and God. And all three of those barriers have been there right from the very beginning, from the moment that Adam and Eve first disobeyed uh, the word of God. There are these barriers that must be overcome for us to enjoy our true creation purpose, which is to be in communion with God. And see, here's the key verse, I think, that just the real key verse, that's kind of the the, the turning point there in chapter 9. It's in verse 11. Listen to these words. It says, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, of the good things that have come. So I want to talk about these good things, these barrier overcoming good things. And we're going to look at them one at a time. So number one, our defiled conscience. That's barrier number one. Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't know if you have any ideas in your mind when you think of conscience. What is it? You might think of kind of the old cartoon version of, of a conscience that, you know, you walk around through life and you've got kind of two angels that, are, that follow you around everywhere, uh, one on your left shoulder, one on your right. One's a, an angel trying to sort of persuade you to do good things and the, the devil over here trying to persuade you to do bad things. So, like, you know, I don't know if any of you have been, like, on a health food kick or on a diet uh, recently. You know, you might think of the, you know, the, the, the angel on one side trying to get you to eat more salad and the other devil on the other side is like, nah, you know, you need to go indulge yourself, enjoy yourself, eat the ice cream or whatever it is. Um, that's kind of how out in our culture we conceive of conscience. And what happens is if you give in to the, the devil, then, you know, the angel is there going, oh, come on. Come on, and just rolling your eyes and condemning you. We think of conscience as something that is quite condemning. But the Bible portrays conscience a little bit different, not so much as a judge that's convicting and condemning us, but the conscience is a God-given warning system, a little bit like the, you know, the warning systems in, say, your car, or the warning system that exists in your physical body, like your nerve endings that have pain sensors so that when you touch something hot, you can feel it straight away so that your body knows to, you know, remove your hand from that hot thing. It's, it's a way of helping you not harm yourself even more. And so if you think of your conscience then perhaps as the pain sensor or the check engine light of your soul. Think back to the Garden of Eden. If you know the story, God said, you, you, everything that you see is yours to have except for one tree, one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that. And if you eat that tree or the fruit of that tree, then you will die. But then Satan, the enemy of God, the serpent comes along and he says to them, he, he says this, he says, you know what? God's, God knows something 
and he's not telling you. He's keeping this from you. He knows that if you eat that fruit, that your eyes will be open and you will be like him. You will know good and evil, and you won't really need him anymore. You, you can kind of control your own destiny. It's the first lie in history, and it was this. That piece of fruit is like superfood, the very first superfood. And when you eat it, you won't have to submit to him again. But then what happened when they, when they did it? When they ate the fruit, they believed the lie. It says their eyes were opened. He was right about that. Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they made coverings for themselves. Their eyes were opened, all right. It turned out their conscience was enough to make them feel something, and that something was shame. They felt the shame for doing the wrong thing. It was the check engine light came on. It was enough to prompt them to cover up. But see, what their conscience couldn't do in that moment was to undo the wrong thing that they had done. What was done was done, and now their consciences were defiled. Their souls were in deep pain from that moment on. And, and we have the same conscience, a warning light. It's a witness to the problem. There's something in the soul that's not right. And the only way we can get the light to switch off, the only way we can get it to stop flashing is when the underlying cause of the problem is fixed. Adam and Eve, they, they saw the light come on. They felt the shame like we have as well. And they covered up their naked flesh. But they couldn't cover up the shame inside. The light just kept on flashing. Now come with me to Hebrews 9, and I want to summarize the first 14 verses. The old system of worship, and we talked about this last week, under the old covenant, it did not, in fact, it could not fix the problem that led to the defiled conscience. It could not overcome the real barrier between you and me and God. He, he describes the tabernacle, the, the worship space, in detail. Again, it goes into all the furniture in the first five verses. It's the sacred space. And then he sums it up in verse 9 with these words. He says, this, meaning the tabernacle system, this whole thing, everything you see, is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that, guess what, cannot, cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They can't fix the problem that we have. For hundreds of years, God's people were required to bring their tithes, their offerings, and their sacrifices to the priests who would present them to God. Why? Why? If these things can't really fix the problem, why would, why would he command to do something that's futile? They can't purify the heart. The heart is the control center of everything you do, your behavior, your words, your, 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 your anxieties, your fears. It all flows out of what's going on in your heart. And as long as your heart is defiled, your heart is unclean, that check engine light's going to still flash, especially when God comes near. Remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden. After they sinned, when God came around, they hid. They ran away. And that's what the defiled conscience does. It runs away from God and not toward him. That's the barrier. So what's the good news? How does anyone overcome the barrier of the defiled conscience? Uh, and, and, and why did he re require the, the sacrifices? Well, 
Look at verse 11. But Christ has appeared, again, as a high priest of the good things that have come. See, in the old system, blood sacrifice cleansed the outside. A symbol, a symbol of something. It was, the Holy Spirit was telling us something that you needed, we needed to have our souls cleansed. In the new system that was, he was preparing us for, there's a new and a better sacrifice. And that is Christ, the high priest, who's not offering an animal, offering himself. And you see this in verse 14. How much more, after thousands of years of watching animal after animal after animal be slaughtered on the altar, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. See, the old sacrifices had to be perfect. They couldn't have any blemish, nothing wrong with these animals. And, and that was pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. He offered himself without blemish to God. How much more then will he cleanse our consciences. There's the problem fixed. Cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. What do you do with your defiled conscience flashing at you, telling you that you've done something wrong, helping, causing you to feel pain and shame? Well, essentially, there's two, two options, two things you can do. Number one, you can suppress it. You can ignore it. You can take a piece of gaffer tape and just put it over the light so you can't see it anymore. I did that in an old car once. And you can do that with your soul. You can do that with your conscience. Eventually, you don't notice it anymore. I mean, why would you do that? Well, why would you do it in a car? Because fixing the problem, especially if it's an old car, costs money. You might think it's worth more than the car is. Just cover it up. Don't notice it. Forget about it until it just dies. Well, we can do that with our, with our soul. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this. He says, To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. So I've got 100,000 clicks on the odometer. You can't expect me to run perfectly. My mistakes can't be that big of a deal. That's what we tell ourselves. Paul gives the hard truth about the person with a defiled conscience. It's not that we just got a lot of kilometers. He says, you're not roadworthy. I'm not roadworthy at all. Shouldn't be on the road. He goes on there in Titus 1. He says, they, those people with the defiled conscience, and that's all of us pre-Christ, are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for every, any good work. Ready for the scrap heap. That's what happens when we suppress the conscience and ignore it. And if you do that, look at verse 14. Instead of being, sorry, skip something. This is option number two. Not suppressing the conscience, but letting Christ cleanse and recalibrate your conscience. Because if you do that, you see in verse 14 of Hebrews 9, instead of being unfit for any good work. That's what Paul said about the defiled conscience. Instead of being unfit, he says, you are now free, cleansed from dead works, so that you can what? Serve the living God. See, Jesus doesn't just make you roadworthy so you can tick the box. He commissions you and me into the royal fleet. He doesn't just polish you up on the outside. 
He opens your eyes so that you can know and delight in what's good. That's what Satan tried to promise. That's what he lied to Adam and Eve. He said, you know what? You don't need God to know the difference between good and evil. It was a lie. Christ comes and opens your eyes so that you really do know what is good and delight at what is good and do what is good. Only he can do that. Only he can cleanse the defiled conscience like that and then commission you, release you to do what you were created to do, and that's to serve the living God. How good is that? That's barrier number one, defiled conscience, totally defeated by Jesus. So let's look at barrier number two, which is our sin against God. And you might be thinking, okay, I know, I know what this is. You know, what could you possibly tell me but beyond Romans 3.23? All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've heard this before, but I want you this morning to let the words of Hebrews 9 kind of wash over us. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the mediator, the in-between, the one who bridges the gap between us and God. Um, we see this again in verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. And that new covenant, again, the agreement that comes with better promises. Better promises. And he refers to the promises in the next phrase. Again, verse 15. So that those who are called, that's us, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It's pretty good. I'll come back to that eternal inheritance in point number three. But verse 15 goes on. He says, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions, that's sins, uh, committed under the first covenant. Now, the word because there is connected to the first clause. He is a mediator because. He's a mediator. So you've kind of got to put that phrase about eternal inheritance off to the side. The, the, the logic of the sentence is, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant because a death has taken place, because he died. That's the argument. The main point is not, he's, he's not saying Christians receive an inheritance because Christ died, although that's true. It's just not his main point. His main point is Jesus is the mediator of the covenant because he died. And let me show you why that's important. If you look at the verses that come after verse 15, he goes back and he looks at how the first old covenant came into effect. When the check engine light started flashing in Adam and Eve's hearts, what, what do they do? They, they, they hid and they tried to cover themselves with leaves. But God finds them, of course. He saw them, and he proceeds to punish them according to the terms of the very first covenant, and that, that we theologians call that the covenant of works. It's this. If you eat this fruit, you will definitely die. Well, they ate the fruit, and now they would reap death. But if you know the story, you might remember that as soon as God got done telling the man, Adam, that his body would die, that he would return to dust, God does something truly remarkable. God himself causes the very first death in the history of ever. But he didn't kill Adam, did he? Who did he kill? He killed an animal. He slaughtered an animal to cover their nakedness. The very first act of grace. When God did that, he was saying to them and to us that the only way that your sin can be undone. The only way it can be destroyed without destroying you 
is to shed innocent blood. It's the only way. Because it was the covenant. Every covenant between God and man has been inaugurated or put into effect by some kind of death. There's always a death. That's the whole point of verses 16 to 22. Just like a, a will, if you've ever you know, been you know, the executor of someone's estate, you've got a will. Well, for the will to come to effect, the, the person who made it has to die. He says that in verse 16 to 17. The covenant agreement requires a death. The new covenant that we talked about and introduced last week is no exception. Hebrews points us back to Moses and how he took animal blood and he sprinkled it on the people and the tabernacle all over their worship space to symbolize a covering that their sins had been at least outwardly purified. And then he sums it up in verse 22. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Notice he doesn't say covenant. He doesn't say no blood, no deal. No blood, no covenant. No, he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. No forgiveness. The purpose behind the death is that God desires, wills to forgive the sins of sinners. Go back to verse 15 again. A death has taken place for the redemption, that's the forgiveness, from the sins committed under the first covenant. When Adam broke God's covenant agreement in the garden. God drew the blood of an animal to cover over his shame. Centuries later, when God inaugurated the covenant of Moses, the Ten Commandments, God required the blood of animals to cover over their impurity. And now today, in 2020, whenever you break or I break God's covenant commandments to love him with your whole heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, God does not require the blood of an animal no, he drew his own blood, the blood of his son Jesus, so that every sin that you have ever committed and will ever commit has been fully redeemed and covered, atoned by his blood. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we can stop sewing all our leaves together, stop with the gaffer tape over the check engine light, you can freely confess your sin to God and receive his mercy because that barrier is gone in Christ. Not from dead works, not by religious fervor, not by going to church or giving money or having a quiet time. All those things can be good, but it's only by God's free gift of grace. The precious blood of Jesus is the only thing that overcomes that barrier. When I was young, I can remember one summer um, in the neighborhood where we lived, the local well, what's kind of like the local council had decided on our road to put in um, speed bumps every, you know, few hundred meters. And our lady that lived next door to us, she was so mad because they put one of those right outside her driveway. She'd have to drive over it every time she'd come and go anywhere. And so she would get up in the middle of the night and she would fill up these huge jerry cans of petrol and she would just go out and pour petrol all over this thing because it was made out of asphalt. And eventually it was teeny tiny. A few years later, the council got wise and they made them out of rubber. And so I think they're still there. But you know what? Think of Jesus' blood as a bit like that petrol. Poured over the mountain of your sin until it's completely gone. Melted away in an instant forever. Barrier number one, a defiled conscience. 
totally cleansed by Jesus. Barrier number two, our sin against God melted away completely by Jesus. Now, come to barrier number three. And that is just the distance, the separation between God and us. One more time, let's go back to Genesis 3. See, after God killed the animal to make clothes for Adam and Eve, you know what he did? He sent them out of the garden. Now, that wasn't a tantrum on God's part. It wasn't because he did not want to be near them. He said, why? If you go back and look at it, he said, I don't want them to be near the tree of life. Because if they were near the tree of life, they would eat from it, they would live forever, and they would attempt to do so without God. He wanted his children, and he still wants all of us, his children, to come to him directly for life. So what does that have to do with Hebrews 9? I'll go back to the description of the tabernacle. He said right at the center of the tabernacle, we looked at this last week as well, there was, there, well, there was the tent, the main, the whole, the, which was called the holy place, but in the middle there was kind of like a second tent that was the most holy place. That was how he directed it to be set up. And there was this curtain of separation. They called it the second curtain. You go in of the main entrance, that was the first curtain. Then you come inside, there was the second curtain. And only one person could go behind that, cur- that second curtain, the high priest. And only one day of the year could he do it. And he had to go with a blood sacrifice. Why? Verses 8 to 10, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Old Testament, who inspired the tabernacle design and the system, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place, the way into presence and intimacy and communion with God had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for now, for the present time, until the time of the new order. Now, that's barrier number three, and the Holy Spirit wants you to see it. That under the old covenant, the way into God's presence hadn't been disclosed. And that separation, that distance, will remain between us and God until what he calls the time of the new order. What's that? And how does Christ overcome this barrier? How does Christ bring you and me to where God is, into the most holy place? Now, it's not easy to answer that question. And the reason is that God is not a physical being. There's no vehicle or technology that will ever be discovered or invented that can take you to where God is. It's not how it works. He's not confined uh, by physical space. The separation we experience as humans, not just about kilometers, because God and humans dwell in two entirely different realms. That sounds kind of science fiction-y, so let me explain what I mean by that. So the Bible has a, a variety of ways of describing and then contrasting these two realms. The realm of God, who is the creator, he is totally separate from the realm of humans, that is creation. Two of these ways of speaking about these two realms show up in Hebrews chapter 9. The first pair of words or ideas, the first contrast between the realms, can be summarized with these two words, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Heaven is the uncreated spiritual realm where God dwells. And earth is the created physical realm where we are. And there is no way to physically get from earth to heaven except one. Look at verse 11. But Christ has appeared 
Where did he appear? He appeared on earth, seemingly out of from nowhere, from some other realm, as a high priest of the good things that have come. Now stop there. Remember when God created in Genesis. He created on, in six days, and every single day he looked at what he had created, and it was what? It was good. And here comes Christ on the scene as the high priest of the good things that have come, that have broken into the creation that has been spoiled by sin. The good things are breaking, and I love that. How does everything that had been spoiled become good again? Only if something good breaks in from another realm, from outside. Keep reading in verse 11. Christ has appeared as high priest in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. So not only did Christ appear in this creation, he appeared in the heavenly realm as well, outside of creation. What does that mean? Where is this greater uncreated tabernacle? Well, it's not on earth. You've got to jump down to verse 24. Look at this. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands. That was only a model of the true one. That's the one that was in Jerusalem. Christ entered where? Into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. See, when Christ died, when he offered himself, he offered himself where? In the presence of God. Why? For us. Because that's where he's taking us. Into the presence of God. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. In that moment, he appeared, as it were, in heaven, in God's realm, in God's presence. For who? For you. For me. For us. He is the one whose death opens the way into that second curtain. He bridges heaven and earth. He is the bridge between you and your Father in heaven. The Bible doesn't just use place words, though, to talk about these two realms, words like heaven and earth. The Bible also uses time words. And these time words are here in chapter 9 as well. Verses 9 to 11, the preacher contrasts the present time with a future time of reformation, or a time he calls the time of the new order in verse 11. He says the tabernacle and its sacrifices are for now, or for the present time. And all these things are pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice of himself. And that sacrifice, that moment in history, kicks off this time of reformation, this new order time. In verse 12, Christ didn't sacrifice himself for the sins of the people, or he didn't just sacrifice himself for the people who were alive at the same time 2,000 years ago. He said he sacrificed once in history for all time, for all people in all of history. He went into the most holy place, not into the Jerusalem temple, because that was just for the Israelites, the people who were alive in Jerusalem. Where did he go? It says he went into the eternal temple, and there he achieved, verse 11, eternal redemption, which is good news for us because we weren't alive back then. Jesus died and offered himself in the eternal realm. His one sacrifice is time enough, in time, is enough for all peoples in all times, including today, including right now, in this very moment. 
I look down at verse 26. Jesus died on one specific day in history that the preacher calls the end of the ages. What does that mean? Well, it means that when Jesus appeared on earth 2,000 years ago, that that was the turning point in history. There was the present age giving way to the new order. The transition from old covenant to new covenant, from the present age to the age to come. Now look at verse 28. Christ will appear, future, a second time, but for a different reason, to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ came in history, he will come again in history. And this is so important for us to understand. It gets right at the heart of the message of Hebrews. Jesus, when he came the first time, he made it possible for you, for me, for anyone to be saved. So that at some later moment in time, you would believe. That's the moment your salvation became reality for you. When you understood the grace of God for you in that moment in time. But see, you won't fully realize and experience the goal of your salvation until when? Until you are with God in his presence. That's when you fully understand what salvation is and what Jesus has done for you. And that's the good news of the gospel. That is your guaranteed future. You are now in this, living in this in-between space, this in-between time between when you were saved, when you first understood the grace of God, and when you were fully in the presence of God. And that will happen when? Either at the moment you die or the moment Jesus breaks into history if you happen to be alive on that time. The barrier of separation, Jesus overcame that at the cross. And you will experience that overcoming when you meet him face to face, but you get a taste of it now. You get a taste of it now. Which means that whatever this season of life is like for you, no matter how hard it is, you can keep going. Because you know your future. Because you know that Jesus guaranteed, sealed your salvation. He guaranteed your victory when he died in your place. And maybe you're a Christian like me, like all of us who struggles, who struggles with sin. Sins like, like bitterness or spiritual pride or um, lust and pornography or gossip or laziness. Satan, the old, the old snake from Genesis 3, wants you to believe a lie. He wants you to believe that God took off, that he's left you here to fight this stuff on your own, to fix the engine of your life on your own with no manual to consult but your own wisdom. Only you can get through another day. So just get out that gaffer tape, get out that can of petrol, melt those barriers down. But I want you to know that that's a lie. I, I want you to look at the people around you these are the people in your life that Jesus has saved. These are the people that he's now in the presence of God advocating for, for you and everyone you see in this room, everyone who is in Christ. 
He is there in, in the heavenly realm in eternity. He's dropped that anchor in that space, in that realm, and now is leading you, pulling you to where he is. One of my favorite summaries of the gospel is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered, past tense, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that's us. Why? To bring us to God. That is the goal of the gospel. No more separation. And that's good news when you're having a bad day. At your worst day, your worst moment, when you're up in the middle of the night with kids, when you're frustrated at work that's good news jesus has been where you are and now he's right now in the very presence of god and soon soon you will be there too so keep going jesus came and he's coming again to smash those barriers that keep you away from god your broken defiled conscience your record of of sin against god that makes you unfit to be where he is, and then the separation itself. None of those barriers can withstand the blood of Jesus. No, not one. So let me close with these words from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Now bring this, I hope, bring this together. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says it so much better than I could. So just hang on these words and let, let these words be your hope, your strength today and tomorrow when you go back to work or in the middle of the night, whenever it is, Jesus is your barrier-smashing high priest. So listen to Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to listen, to bring everything together in Christ. No more separation, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. One day, church, you are going to be where he is. So let's celebrate that now as we wait. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. As we think back to our first parents, the day that we had to leave your presence, the way, day we had to leave paradise, the day we had to be confronted with our sin and, and shame. Lord, you did that, that we might reach out to you and might reach out for help, knowing that you are able, knowing that you are willing, knowing that's why you came and offered yourself that we might have Jesus as our anchor to hold us onto, to bring us in through every storm into your presence, safely into that harbor that is your loving arms. God, help us to believe. Help our hearts to believe that today, that, that you are our better hope. You're better than anything else that we could put our hope in. Remind us as we now take communion of your blood sacrifice that covers, that washes, that cleanses, that purifies, that gives us hope and joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.